Thank you, Roy. I felt particularly liberated when he handed me a tambourine this morning in the, 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 the vestry. That, that, was, that was good. <clears throat> we'll hold on to it. It might be useful tonight. We'll, we'll see. Um, I want to read from the book of Ezekiel, of course. Um, we're turning to the 16th chapter. Now, the language of the 16th chapter of Ezekiel is shocking. It is designed to shock, and it does. Charles Haddon Spurgeon actually addressing his congregation in the 19th century in Victorian England. He said, and I quote, a minister could scarcely read this passage in public. We'll read the first 15 verses of Ezekiel 16. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices, says with her detestable practice. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. <clears throat> your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field for on the day you were born you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said, Live. I've made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew and developed and entered puberty. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown and you were stark and yet you were stark naked. Later I passed by and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointment on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck and I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head so you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothes were of fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth your food was honey olive oil the finest flower you you became very beautiful and rose to be a queen and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the Sovereign Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. It's, it's one of a, 
series of three allegories that occur at this part of the, of the prophecy. In fact, in Ezekiel 15, uh, the first of the three, because I, I felt that this was the one I wanted to focus on this morning. In Ezekiel 15, the first of the three allegories, um, th- th- there is the, the scene of a useless vine, a vine that is without even hint of fruit. Even the wood is of no value other than for kindling. And Israel is in the dock. And these are pictures of Israel as God sees her. And then in Ezekiel 17, the allegory is of two eagles, Babylon and Egypt. The text makes that absolutely clear. <clears throat> the, um, and the truth is that this allegory carries is that our God takes promises seriously. Now, we're not looking at these allegories, but I just want to mention them and put in context the one that we, we are doing. God takes promises seriously. Zedekiah who was the king of Judah, made a covenant with Nebuchadnezzar uh, of Babylon. And then he broke that covenant and he looked towards Egypt for help. And God was displeased and dishonored. And it's interesting because this covenant that Hezekiah had made with Nebuchadnezzar, God refers to this as my covenant. And the, the, the teaching very clearly that Israel is receiving from God is, I take your promises seriously. And how we who name the name of Christ should be men and women of integrity, where our word is our bond. And people know that. But of the three allegories uh, in Ezekiel 15, 16 and 17, as I say, I want to pick out for special consideration this morning this particular allegory of Ezekiel 16. And I want to take three simple steps that are, you will agree, uh, generally sensible in biblical exposition. <clears throat> I want to remind ourselves uh, rather graphically of the, the story itself. I want to ask what exactly was the significance of this story to Israel in Ezekiel's time. Israel finding themselves exiled in Babylon. And then thirdly, we must face up to the significance of this story as the Spirit of God has retained it and given it to us in his word. So the story is very much of a little girl who's abandoned in a field on the day of her birth. And none of the, it was lovely to hear this morning the, the way in which a new birth has been welcomed into the family here in Windsor and, and how we know the care that will be lavished on that child and the love into which she's born or he's born. But none of the, the caring things that usually accompany birth in a civilized society were done for this child referred to in Ezekiel 16. Her condition is shocking. The umbilical cord is left trailing pathetically from the poor little wretch, just like an animal in the wild. No caring mother, no attentive midwife. None of those things are evident here. She was left unwashed, no soothing antiseptics, no refreshing oils for this child, not even a stitch of clothing. She's left naked, uncared for, cold, And pitiful is the scene. And because of her rather disgusting appearance, 
and her mixed parentage, nobody cared. She was despised, just left to die with callous indifference. And then a stranger comes by. And the stranger is not someone from these parts. He's, he, he's not local. And he sees the little creature kicking about in its blood and placenta, but he cares. He's moved with compassion towards what he sees, and he immediately takes action to save the dying child and says, live, and he washes and clothes and feeds and begins a whole process of protection and affection. And time passes by. Uh, and uh, time is compressed in the story and the stranger begins to observe the developing consequences of his loving care and the baby grows into a, a beautiful young woman. And with Eastern frankness, th this story speaks of love developing in the one who cares, love that develops into true romance. So the stranger falls in love with the young woman, the child of his care, the one he has saved and nourished and protected. And in time, the, the stranger enters into a covenant of marriage with the young woman. Everything is honorable. Everything is handled with perfect discretion it's quite a beautiful story. He provides for her a wonderful wedding dress, a wardrobe that would highlight her beauty and the natural beauty of the wife he loves so deeply. He does everything he can to bring out that beauty and present it in all its loveliness. Nothing is withheld. withheld. This exquisite jewelry we read off here is carefully selected. The healthiest of food is purchased in order to ensure her good health. And word gets around, and throughout the nations, this young woman's beauty is, it becomes legendary. She's the sort of woman would be in the front page of Vogue and be well spoken of. She's the talking point for beauty, splendid perfection. These were the sort of reviews that this young woman received. But tragedy struck. She becomes infatuated, not with the one who has protected her, not with her lover, her husband, her benefactor, the kind, romantic stranger. She becomes infatuated with her own beauty, with her own pooling power, with the influence and the effect she has on men. She becomes arrogant, selfish, totally self-centered, openly promiscuous. The kind of, she has affair after affair. She becomes a talking point now for an entirely different reason. She even introduces her own children. You can read more from what I read, beyond what I read. She even introduces her own children shamelessly to her own seductive lifestyle. She uses all the beauty and the feminine prowess that she has been given in order to pursue unfaithfulness. She first of all makes infidelity and immorality a business, and then she turns it into something akin to a religion. She's insatiable in her wickedness. She brings unthinkable shame upon her husband. Oh, yes, he's jealous. 
Of course he's jealous. He's jealous of her honor and jealous of his honor and jealous of what might have been, what should have been. And his pleading is ignored for years. And then in verse 39, we read, with resignation, not with hatred, but with resignation, I then will hand you over to your lovers. Because, you see, sin carries its own ugly consequences. Remember that God, as we've been reminded over the last four weeks, and as you, I know, know and have learned from this pulpit and from Sunday school and from your own reading, that that God has built moral laws into his creation that are just as firm as the physical laws that we we know about. There are inevitable consequences for wickedness, for breaking the laws of God. Wickedness turns in on itself. Sometimes God allows the inevitable results of evil to run its course, even to subsequent generations. Like mother, like daughter. Everyone who quotes this proverb, says verse 44, We'll quote this one about you, like mother, like daughter. And look at uh, verse 59 there. I will deal with you as you deserve, because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. And that's justice. And justice is awful. <clears throat> but, but, but if the story ended there uh, and just catalogued the horrific end of the adulteress, <clears throat> there would be no grounds for complaint. The, the way this young woman has behaved would leave no grounds for complaint. Justice would be done and it would be seen to be done and no one could raise an objection. But Ezekiel 16 is not primarily about justice, not even about mercy, it's about grace. And I I was saying to Roy before we come out, you know, I'm so glad that this particular message comes in the context of a morning when we take the bread and the wine and we remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because justice, as you well know, is about getting the, the due consequences of our behavior, getting what we deserve. That's justice. Mercy is being spared from those consequences when we're guilty and deserve punishment for that punishment to be withheld. This is mercy. But grace, oh wow. Grace is that which transcends mercy and, and, and adds beauty and wonderful things to mercy that we never deserve. And I praise God for Ezekiel 16, verse 16. Because without it and verses like it, you see, I am facing only justice. Nothing else. And if all I have to look forward to is the unmitigating justice that my sin and my life deserves, that aging would be a nightmare. It it, it would be a nightmare. And the prospect of dying would, would horrify me and I'd be shut out from God for all eternity and all hope would be gone. The blackness of darkness forever. <clears throat> the Bible calls it hell. <coughs> Sorry about the throat. 
There's a lot I don't understand about the ways of God, but I know this, he takes justice seriously. And that's what the cross is all about. You know, it, 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 it just strikes me in passing, a couple of Sunday nights ago, Norman Thompson on the way out said, hadn't did you ever listened to Sunday Half Hour? And I thought Sunday Half Hour had gone out in the 80s, but there on Radio 2 on the way home, I tuned into Sunday Half Hour, and they, they sang Francis Ridley Havergill's him take my life and let it be but the presenter said you know there were nights when Frances Havergill couldn't sleep because she was so happy and I'm not wanting to be sort of Christian of the week I'm not looking for stripes but on Tuesday night at 3 o'clock in the morning I couldn't sleep and I nudged Betty and said look I'm getting up but there's nothing wrong and I realised you know why I couldn't sleep I was so happy Seriously. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't circumstances particularly. It was just I was overwhelmed by the thought that I was forgiven, that the best had yet to come, that I had a home in heaven, that I had a Savior, and that I had nothing to do to deserve it. And it thrilled me. It overwhelmed me. I'm not always like that. I mean, I bet I'm a pain in the neck sometimes. But, you know, on that occasion... I just couldn't sleep. I was so happy. Listen to the stranger in the allegory. Of course we know that he's representative of the God of all grace. Listen to these incredible words from the the faithful lover of our story here. Listen to these words. Yet, in spite of it all, in spite of all that has happened, I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. You see, that's really the story of Ezekiel 16. The prophet did not mince his words. The Holy Spirit did not censor the language in any way to the Israelites here. Whether in exile or in Jerusalem, they could not fail to see themselves in this helpless, rejected baby, this girl, this woman, this thankless, heartless, unfaithful wife. They saw themselves in that. At least that's what the Spirit of God was seeking. Do we? Do we? You know, the Scottish bard, Robbie Burns, those, that well-known couplet, you'll recall, Oh, would some part of the gift of gears to see ourselves as others see us. I can't do the Scottish accent. Good thing to see ourselves as others see us. But Ezekiel's ambition was greater than that. He wants us to see ourselves as God sees us. It's not a pretty sight. Oh, in Christ, it's, it's wonderful. That's why I couldn't sleep. But I need, in order to get the full significance of this, I need to see myself in this faithless woman. The Israelites, even in exile, were proud of their ancestry. Pure Aramean stock, children of Abraham. They, they despised the Canaanites. They despised the Amorites. They despised the Hittites. These were the dispossessed people of Canaan, people who had offended God with their vile practices. And yet God is now saying through the prophet, your mother was a Hittite. Your father was an Amorite. It's poetic language. Of course it's poetic language. Yet just 
Like the way Jesus spoke, you'll remember, to the scribes and Pharisees of his day, you're a generation of vipers, you're whited sepulchers, and, and, and to the Jews who, who, who were rejecting him, Father Abraham? No, you're of your father the devil. God doesn't mince his words. The Israelites in Ezekiel's day showed more of the nature of Canaan than they did of the, the, the nature of Abraham, the faithful one. wonder who we take after. How does God see me this morning? How does he see us? If we had an Ezekiel in our midst this morning with the prophetic mind of God speaking from this pulpit, would the appropriate allegory be, your mother was a Hittite. And all the implications of that. Your father was an Amorite. Ulster Scott, Planter Stock, Huguenot, Ulster Protestant, Irish Baptist, Evangelical, all these titles, it all carries little weight with God. How does he see us? How does he see us this morning? Because you know we're a congregation of just messed up sinners. God wants us to recognize that. that that's, that's where worship really comes from. When I realize I'm a worm and yet God loves me. Pours out his love and his grace upon me. Ezekiel 16, you see, is about us. It's about me. By nature, I am unwashed. I'm unclothed. I'm unfaithful. And I'm dying. And Ezekiel 16, you know, it's, it's not primarily for non-Christians, although there is a wonderful gospel significance in this story. There, there's a picture here of how God sees you and me in, in a pitiful state, helpless and dying. And our Father God is not indifferent to our condition. He's concerned. He's, he's, he's filled with compassion. And, and, and if you're outside of Christ this morning, you know, he's crying on to you, just like the stranger did when he came. Oh, live, he said. There's life for a look at the crucified one. There's life. Wants us to live. The story is told of the old Puritan Thomas Goodwin when he was dying. Uh, and he, he slipped in and out of consciousness in his last moments. And you may have heard the story. Uh, on one occasion, the eyes opened and he looked with some degree of understanding around the room. And one of his friends said, Ah, oh, Thomas. You're back in the land of the living. No, he said, I'm back in the land of the dying. I go to the land of the living. Live! God in Jesus Christ has put everything on tap for our salvation, for our eternal well-being, and he wants to enter into an eternal relationship with us, and he wants to make us his very own, and he wants to fit us for heaven, and he has the authority and the means to do it. And he seeks from us this morning an appropriate response. The gospel is here in Ezekiel. But the allegory is for those who have enjoyed the privilege of covenant relationship and, 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 and who have seen and experienced the grace of God in their lives and who are playing fast and loose with God. Ezekiel 16 is about spiritual adulterers. 
and you say, hold it, Hatton. You're going a bit far. This is offensive. I'm not perfect, but I don't fit that particular description. You, you, you can be sure that the people of Ezekiel's day balked at this charge too. It can be very disturbing when God's searching eye penetrates our defenses. I, I, I fear that we have diluted our whole perception of sin. And you know, I, I, I had to pinch myself because I was going through... The, the Lord's Supper, as Roy thoughtfully led us through it, and yet I was doing it so mechanically. I don't want to do that. I'm sure that one of the primary purposes for which the Lord Jesus Christ asks us to remember him in this way and to focus our gaze regularly on his death in the communion service is in order to remind me just how ugly my sin is. And that's what this story is about. It's when I'm confronted with Jesus nailed in desolate agony on a cross that I get a closer view of God's view of sin. That God had to go to these extremes in order to deal with my sin. The things that I can so easily excuse in myself. And God had to do this. Become a man and suffer like this. You know, that lecherous look, that lecherous thought, men, in that thought, in that process, are the very seeds of infidelity and dishonor. Let's not pretend before God. Let's be real. That sour contempt, that intense dislike for someone else, it has the seeds of destruction and murder in it. That covetous spirit is the seeds of theft and dishonor and worse. That gluttony is grounds for someone's exploitation. That pride and self-centeredness that I can dispense or think so little about, it can move me towards insensitivity towards the intense insensitivity towards the needs of others. I need to take sin seriously. God wants me to do that. The more I read the Bible and the more I am troubled by my acceptance of materialism and rampant consumerism and things like that, you know, we don't think it's all that serious. But, well, let me ask you a question. If you were asked, what was the the sin of Sodom? I wonder what your answer would be. I'm pretty sure what comes immediately to your mind, because it came to mine. The sin that derives its very name from that city, that's, that's what comes to mind. Well, ugly though that sin is, it is only part of God's perspective. Ezekiel 16.49 says this. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant overfed and unconcerned, they did not help the poor and the needy. Wow. The spirit of our age, particularly the spirit of the Western democracies, is one of selfish individualism. And it has infiltrated the church and it has distorted and truncated our concept of sin and our standards have slipped away and God's standards 
have been so readily reduced and set aside. The word that James wrote to the believers of his day are very unfashionable today, but they apply, you're adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And some of us and some of our churches are powerless and unfulfilled and unhappy because we're trying to mix it. And it's spiritual adultery. And sometimes God does what is described in Ezekiel 16 and hands us over to our lovers and the world takes over and its standards become ours rather fast. Verse 39, they will strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry and leave you naked and bare. It's a pretty awful picture. And it's not just history. It's relevant this morning in Windsor Baptist Church. But there's grace. There there, there is such a wonderful message of hope for individuals and for churches and for nations. And and this message has two sides, this message. There's God's side. I will remember the covenant that I made with you. And there's our side. We will remember our ways and be ashamed. Our God brings in his wrath reluctantly. I find this over and over and over again in Scripture. There's a jewel from the book of Lamentations, a strange book in which to find such a passage, but there it is. Though God brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to any human being. The Bible is is full of wonderful stories. We need to recognize our pathetic sinfulness and embrace God's forgiveness and seek the help of his spirit and oh, how willingly he gives and gives and gives again. And I find the Bible full of it. He made a, a murderer into a great godly leader in Moses. In Saul of Tarsus, we find he he turned a vicious persecutor of Christians into the greatest Christian missionary. He takes John Newton, who is a slave trader, and makes a gracious minister of the gospel out of him. And of course, he turned David around from a selfish adulterer to one who God could say is a man after my own heart. This is the nature of grace. This chapter does hit us right between the eyes, but oh, it leaves us with that wonderful promise of God's grace, that willingness to give us a first, second, third, fourth, fifth, to to, to go on when we really do recognize our need for the cross of Jesus and the death of Jesus, how God delights to pour in his grace. And I want us to realize as I close this morning that God looks for a response, an acknowledgement. doesn't want us to go out of here depressed. wants us to go out of here realizing that in spite of my sinfulness, there is this wonderful offer of grace. What father among you, if his child asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? How much more will my father give the spirit to those who ask him? And that's, that's a promise of, of help, the life of God enabling us to live in a way that will, will honor him.
Can we respond to that this morning? Could we bow just a moment and then we're going to stand and sing, Saviour, thy dying love thou givest me. Nor should I aught withhold my Lord from thee. In love my soul would bow. My heart fulfill its vow. Some offering bring thee now something for thee. Oh God, deliver us from just singing these words in a mechanical fashion. Remind us as the table reminds us that in spite of our sinfulness, our infidelity, you remain faithful and your offer of love and grace is extended. And, O oh God, let our greatest fear be the fear of hurting you. We want to say thank you with our lives. We cannot contribute to our salvation, but we can make our lives an offer of gratitude. Help us. Oh, help us, Lord, in Jesus' name, to respond in a way that honors you. Amen. Amen.